Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to do this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Four, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism, now that saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with the angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. May God bless that reading to us this morning. Let's pray. Loving Father, we ask that by your Spirit you would help us all, young and old, new to these things, or lifelong Christians. We pray that you would help us all grow to love you more this morning. Move in us, help us to understand these words, but more than that, help us to put them into practice, to be shaped and changed by them so that we may live the kind of lives about which we read now. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids, I hope those pictures are coming along. I want to see something good, something that makes you happy, something that would be the best day ever. Now, adults, I want you to do the same thing, but I'm not giving you coloured pencils. You can just imagine in your heads. What would make you so happy? What would make your day the perfect day? What's the good life? If you could write the script of your life, what would you write? All of us are chasing the good life, aren't we? None of us are going around trying to make, make ourselves as miserable as possible. We all are trying to be happy. To want to know that our life matters. 
The question is, how do we actually get that? How do we live a life that is satisfying, that is good? I don't think we're actually very good at it. I don't think we're very good at answering that question. I don't think we humans are very good at knowing what the good life actually is. Now, we think we know, but we actually don't. And the kids are going to prove that for you this morning. Because I have a hunch that the things that the kids draw on their bits of paper this morning will be completely different to what you would draw in yours. I think, maybe not. But at every point in your life, you think or you thought you knew what would make you happy. You thought you knew what the good life looked like, but then you discovered that you were wrong. You discovered that despite what your three-year-old self thought, eating birthday cake for every meal of the day isn't actually very good. And you discovered that getting good marks at school wasn't really as important as you imagined at age 16. Then you discovered that marriage didn't actually solve all your problems if you're married. And I'm sure many of you will have discovered that getting more money does not make you more happy. And this is just going to keep going. Do you see? At every point in our lives, we think we know what will make us happy, and then we discover that it actually doesn't make us as happy as we thought. At every point in our lives, we think we know what is good, but at every point in our lives, we actually need God to show us what is actually good. Well, today we're continuing our series in First Peter, a letter written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends. And for a good chunk of this letter, Peter has been teaching Christians what the good life actually looks like. And it doesn't look anything like what most people imagine. Because when Peter invites us in chapter 2, verse 12, to live such good lives among their non-Christian neighbours that they might see our good deeds and praise God, he immediately goes on to describe this good life as a life of submission. He says the very best life that we can live is where we all submit to every human authority whether that's the government of the state, the boss in the workplace, the husband in the home. He says submission is good. Now, if you missed the previous two weeks here in church, you can catch up on those sermons online where I've tried to convince you that submission is good. But in our passage for this morning, Peter continues his teaching about the good life. And the surprising thing we learn about the good life here is that the good life doesn't always look very good. In fact, he goes so far as to say that the best life that a Christian can live may be a life of unjust, unfair suffering. How does that work? How is that possible? And even if it's true, how do we convince ourselves of that when suffering comes? Let's take a look at what Peter has to teach us in these words. The good life in bad times. Now, I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine for a second that Christianity is illegal in this country. 
Imagine that it's against the law to attend church, to own a Bible, to tell anyone about Jesus Christ. And those that do are regularly betrayed by their own families, handed over to the authorities, deprived of their possessions, publicly humiliated, tortured, imprisoned, killed. Imagine that for a moment. Now, bear in mind that for many Christians around the world, this isn't something they need to imagine. This is a daily reality. But I want you to imagine that this is your reality. What are you going to need to endure that kind of persecution? What's it going to take for you to be able to keep trusting Jesus in that situation? Now, it's hard for us to imagine. We have so much freedom in this country. But did you know that God actually gives you something to help you in that exact situation? He gives you resources to be able to endure that kind of suffering. And one of the things that he gives you is is sitting right next to you. Christians were never designed to go it alone. We are a, a pack animal. We're a flock animal, really. And when suffering and persecution comes, and it will, we're going to need to stand by each other to help each other stand firm. Which is exactly why in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us that the good life is a life of deep Christian relationships. He says, finally, all of you be like-minded. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. He addresses Christians and he says, you need to work at your relationships with each other because you need each other. If we're all going to keep going when life is hard, we're going to need relationships that are strong enough to withstand persecution, to withstand suffering superficial sort of, you know, polite, small talk relationships are not going to cut it in that situation. We need depth. Peter says we need to be like-minded, which means we don't need to agree on everything, but we do need to agree on things of primary importance. We need to agree when it comes to the central truths of the gospel, on who God is, on what he has, what his plan is for this world, on how we can be his children. We, we need to agree on these things. And, and when we don't, well, that's going to compromise our ability to support each other when the time of testing does inevitably come. We also need to have the ability to understand the perspectives of others, the humility to recognize the contributions of others, the love to act in the interest of others. Simply put, the good life is a life where you take your eyes off yourself and direct a greater sense, a greater share of your care and concern for your brothers and sisters. So how are we doing at that? How are we going at forming deep Christian relationships here in this church? 
are the people around you, people that you can trust to support you when times get tough? Can you rely on them to challenge you, to even rebuke you when you need it? And have you done what's required to enable them to rely on you? Are you doing enough to convince them that they can trust you? Friends, we live in a culture where commitment is just at an all-time low, I think. We live in a culture where marriage is until it no longer suits me. We live in an age where employees jump from job to job, where employers are tight-fisted with permanent employment. We live in a time where volunteer organisations are shrinking, where we respond to social invitations with maybe. Our culture is scared of commitment, but we need it here in church. And so I want to urge you to commit to your brothers and sisters here. Now, some of you aren't here very often. Some of you are here until there's a better offer. Some of you are here until I say amen and then you're in the car. And if that's you, this is not me getting you in trouble. But I do want you to understand that you're actually robbing yourself of something really precious and good. Your, your brothers and sisters are poorer for you not committing to them, but you're poorer for it too. When following Jesus gets hard, which it will, we need you. We all need each other. And if the good life is the life of deep Christian relationships, then neglecting your church family is saying no to a gift that God delights to give you and knows that you desperately need. So friends, if you're... If you're lacking a sense of commitment to the people here, can I invite you to reconsider that? Can I challenge you to choose to commit, or if it's not here, commit to a body of believers somewhere? All right, kids, I need your attention. How are we doing with our pictures? I want you to hold them up for me. Who can show me a picture of something that makes them happy? Who can show us the good life in the eyes of a five to seven-year-old child. <laughs> what have we got? Josiah's is about the only one I can barely see, and I can't even see it. A water slide. That's awesome. That would make me happy too. You hold them up so the other adults can see them. This is the good life, according to children. Now, kids, I want you to do something else. I want you to turn your piece of paper over, over. And now I want you to draw me another picture, but this time I want you to draw me something that makes you sad, something that wouldn't make you happy, something that you wouldn't like, something that might ruin your good day. Have a think. Draw a picture. We'll come back to you in a moment. The good life is a life of deep, loving Christian relationships. But it's one thing for us to love people who love us back. How do you respond to people who hate you, who insult you, who attack you? Well, Peter says we respond as if they loved us. We bless them, he says. Verse 9, 
Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Seek the good of people who attack you. Pray for them. Long for them to experience the hope that you have. Can you imagine how hard that is to do? I'm sure you can. Because I'm sure you do get attacked sometimes. I'm sure you do suffer at points. I'm sure you get insulted. How do you respond to that with blessing? Janice and I have a friend who spent her childhood in India uh, with parents who were missionaries. And one night, her dad and two brothers were travelling between villages in India when Hindu extremists stopped their car, trapped them inside and set it alight. Not only did her mother forgive the men who killed three members of her family, she stayed in India so that Hindus might know Jesus. She responded to evil with blessing. And friends, there's only one thing that could have motivated that. There's only one thing that could make that possible. And you know what it is? It's hope. For my friend's mum, it was the sure hope that her husband and her two sons were now more alive than ever. For us, it's the hope that there is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of the one who responded to our sin with blessing. That's the only thing that can motivate this sort of radical love in the face of evil and in the face of persecution. And as hard as it may seem, as impossible as it sounds... Peter shows us that responding to evil with blessing is actually a way of receiving blessing. He says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And then he reinforces his point by quoting from Psalm 34. He says, For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And do you see what Peter says here? He says that when you choose to seek the good of people who attack you, who hate you, who treat you unfairly, not only do you bless them, you you bless yourself. You receive blessing. It helps you and them. And Peter's not just talking about a future blessing in heaven. He's talking about life right now. He's saying that treating people well will actually make you love your life more. And it'll do that because you'll know that you have the approval of the only person in the world whose approval actually matters. 
Friends, when we bless in the face of evil, we know that God is pleased with us. And if God is pleased with us, then who cares what anyone else thinks? The good life is the life of responding to evil with blessing. Now, if you live that way, you'll expect that most people will treat you well. As a general rule, in our culture at least, when you're nice to people, people are nice to you. And that's exactly what Peter says in verse 13. But, in verse 14, he acknowledges that this general rule doesn't always apply. Sometimes good people get treated badly. Sometimes the righteous suffer unjustly. Sometimes the wallabies get really, really bad refereeing calls. No, that was not... I'm still bitter, still bitter. But sometimes... Christians will suffer for doing good. Sometimes you seeking to love your neighbour will actually result in you being insulted, being persecuted in suffering. And even then, Peter says, that's good. He says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Now, why is it good to suffer as a Christian? The New Testament actually gives us quite a few answers to that question. We learn in the New Testament that suffering as a Christian will make us long for heaven. It will strengthen our faith. It will remind us that we need to depend on God. It will affirm that we are actually following Jesus, who suffered unjustly as well. But here in this passage, Peter gives us another answer. He says it's good to suffer as a Christian because it helps other people know the gospel. In verse 15, Peter writes, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You see, his expectation is that when Christians endure suffering, and particularly how we endure suffering, people will be intrigued. They'll want to know more. How is it that you can live as if you have something better than life itself? And so Peter says, be ready. Be ready to answer them. Show them the hope that you have. Show them that you've been given new birth into a living hope. Show them that you're awaiting an inheritance that nothing can take away. And when you do that, you'll be joining Jesus in his mission to bring people to God. Do you see what Peter does there? He uses the gospel as our example. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He says, Christ suffered to bring you to God, and so in your suffering, you join him in bringing others to God. Now, there is a difference there. Christ suffered once. Christ was the righteous one who suffered for unrighteous people like us. 
But as his people, we follow in that pattern. We suffer, and in our suffering, we shine the light of the gospel. Now, many of you will have heard of Richard Wormbrand. If you haven't, he was an atheist Jew. He was born in Romania. He became a Christian. And then he worked a lot of his life evangelizing Nazi and communist soldiers. Over the course of his life in Romania, he was in prison for 14 years. He spent two of them in solitary confinement underground. He was brainwashed, he was beaten, he was tortured, and all for trying to share the hope of Jesus with the people that were persecuting him. Now, he ended up being bailed out by some Norwegian Christians, some brothers and sisters who stood by him and actually paid the Romanian government to release him. And then he spent the rest of his life acting as a voice for persecuted Christians around the world. If you've heard of the Voice of the Martyrs organisation, that that comes from him. But in his book, Richard Wormbrand writes about a fellow prisoner. He's not writing about himself, he's writing about another man, a Christian who was sentenced to death for sharing the gospel. This man was given one last time to see his wife before his execution. And we actually have this man's words recorded. He says this to his wife, You must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do. And my last request of you is that you love them too. Seek their good. We will meet again in heaven, but they will not, unless you seek to love them. Now, they're powerful words, but do you know what makes them more powerful? They become more powerful when you learn that the only reason we know that this conversation happened is because it's reported for us by the secret policeman who saw who oversaw this execution and who was so moved by what he heard that he himself became a Christian and would eventually be thrown into that same prison as the man who brought him to Christ. Friends, when we live as if we have hope, a hope that cannot be moved, a hope that no matter how intensely we are persecuted is sure and steadfast, we will make an impact with the gospel. And so the question for you this morning is, are you ready? Firstly, are you ready to give a reason for the hope that you have? Are you ready to answer the question, why are you a Christian? Why are you following Jesus? Now, we can answer that question today. In fact, I actually really strongly encourage you, after church, over morning tea, ask someone that question. Why are you a Christian? Have a go at answering that. Are you ready to answer when people ask? But secondly, are you ready to suffer for Jesus? Do you actually believe that what Peter says here is true? Do you actually believe that suffering on account of Christ is good? 
is, friends, there's only one way that you'll be able to do that. Trying to convince yourself that it is good, I don't think that will work. Just hoping that in the event that you find yourself being persecuted, it'll just sort of click, I don't think that will work either. Because, friends, the only way that we can actually live this good life is when you see the one who suffered for you and became more captivated by him than anything else in this world. Friends, he suffered to give you hope. And so now you can hope through and beyond suffering. Now, kids, you've got some pictures for me. In your hand, you've got a piece of paper, and on one side it has the very best day you can imagine, and on the other side, a sad day, a hard day, a day that wouldn't make you very happy. Very good. Well, did you know that in your life you'll have days like both of these? You'll have days that are happy, days that are fantastic, the best day ever. And you'll also have days that are hard, days that make you sad. Do you know what? Even on those hard days, you can know that Jesus loves you so much. Even on the very worst days, you can know that Jesus thinks you are incredibly special to him that you are important to him, that he loves you. He loves you so much that he chose to go through a very, very hard day for you. But there's more, because you know what? You guys can help out your parents and your grandparents and the other people here, because sometimes your parents have bad days too. Sometimes mum gets cranky. Sometimes dad gets angry. Sometimes your parents are tired and worried and scared. And do you know what? You guys can help them. You can help them on those days by reminding them, by giving them a big hug and saying, even on bad days, Jesus still loves you. Can you guys do that for mum and dad? They need to be reminded And God uses you to remind them. Now I'm going to pray. I should draw your attention to the fact, I skipped over a section of this passage. Uh, The section about Noah, which you might be very confused by. Uh, I will, I'm happy to talk to you more about it. There's lots of different interpretations of those verses. I understand it to be saying that in the spirit of Jesus, Noah, suffering righteously, shared the hope of repentance, forgiveness, and salvation in God, just like we do. That's, that's the best way of understanding how that fits in this context, uh, but there are different, uh, different interpretations of that. Uh, one quite common one, and in fact, the one that the NIV pushes you more towards uh, is that uh, Jesus, after his resurrection, went and preached some kind of gospel or victory to imprisoned spirits who may even be fallen angels from Noah's day. Uh, If you want to understand that, I can help you, (laughs) I can help explain that a little bit more. It's a tricky passage, Uh, 
do try and understand it, but don't let it distract you from the point that Peter's making there. In your suffering, you have the opportunity to share the hope of Jesus. So let's pray. Let's ask that God would help us do that. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that in your love and kindness that you went to great lengths, that you sent your own son so that we could belong to you, that you sent him into this world to suffer unjustly, to suffer persecution, to suffer to the point of death even though he had done nothing wrong and that he did all that for us. Lord, keep our eyes fixed on him. Would you captivate us? Would you make us captivated by him? Would you help us to delight in him so that we may endure persecution in this life? That we may be able to endure even the worst of days because we know that we have hope in you. Lord, strengthen this hope in us. Help us see that it is unshakable. Lord, help us to live the good life that hopes in you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.